0: So welcome again to the show, and today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things to talk about, and that is lens-sensor relationships. Specifically, to try to summarize here, we're going to be talking about how having more dynamic range is not always the solution. Now, if you don't want to wait for my solution after a whole bunch of, you know, build-up, let me just tell you the short version of the solution. And I risk, of course, some objections coming up immediately if it doesn't sound like what you've heard other people say necessarily. But here it is. My solution is to match the lens to the capabilities of the sensor as far as dynamic range is concerned. So essentially, the lens, um, there's several ways to do this, filtration, filtration. Um, just choosing a certain type of lens, etc. We're going to go into a lot of this here. But basically, you're optimizing the amount of light, the intensity of the light, the sharpness, the contrast, all those things, to make it fall within what that sensor can handle. I used to joke about that. It was like a misquote I had attributed to uh, the wrong actor. And I said, when you have too much light or too much contrast, it's like the, the famous line, you can't handle the truth. You know, it's it's all about what can this sensor handle as opposed to some other sensor. Now, the first example I want to give here, it may not apply to, to every listener, but uh, Panasonic users, uh, listen to this one. This is, this is very fun. You've probably experienced this yourself. And if you've been in the Panasonic Micro Four Thirds game for some time, you know that right around the time when they moved from the well, the GH4 and the G7, and they switched to the uh, Panasonic GX85, you know that they removed the anti-aliasing filter. Now there are other methods these days for dealing with that. We're not going to talk about that, but what I am going to talk about is how that sensor was sort of reducing the contrast and reducing the sharpness, which which is what they state is the reason they took it off, to improve the sharpness. But it was actually helping for certain lenses. Now, one example, let's just go in really quickly and say, the Panasonic G7 was still the version or the era of the camera that had that filter over the sensor. We know going all the way back to the GH2, the GH3, the GH4, they all had the sensor covered with this filter type of filter as well. So when they took it off, I noticed a major difference because I was preparing to buy a G7. I've been shooting with a G5, not the G H5. We're talking G five, you know, the one that doesn't have the ability to control certain settings while shooting video. So you had to trick it by using a manual lens and manual aperture lens and all that. I think Nigel talks about this, Nigel Barros talks about the G6 some of his older videos and that's a very similar camera so just think G6 or G5 this is an old camera but I noticed that once and I was going to so I was getting upgrade to the G7 I was all excited and ready to upgrade but then they came out with a GX85 and so I started looking at all kinds of footage I was looking at you know I had been looking at the G7 footage for about a year I'm the type of person who likes to wait and not buy the camera right away so that I can get a better, you know, a lower price um, about a year later, maybe some, you know, sometimes it goes down faster, but the point is I don't want to buy it right away. And, And for other reasons as well, just to watch and see if the market picks up the camera to see if, you know, the last version goes down, you know, there's a lot of things like that. If you think about the Panasonic GH5, the GH5 now, I've been sort of wanting the, price to decline, hoping it would when the GH6 came out, and then sort of watching people's response to the GH6. Sorry for the side note. But anyway, the point is, this was an old camera I was using. And when I bought the GX85, I noticed a major difference. And I I sort of bought the camera a little bit too quickly, I think. And not to say it wasn't a good decision, because it was. I, I still love this camera. But when I bought the G X85, I was not prepared and I hadn't watched potentially enough uh, video footage to understand that it was going to be a lot different than the G7. And so I think this was all because of the low bypass filter or the anti-aliasing filter being removed. So here I am watching all of this footage for the Panasonic G7 with really good lenses like the Sigma 18-35 1.8. to And then sometimes vintage lenses, because at that time I was experimenting with that as well on my G5, and I had a lot of Nikon glass, Nikon D, and I started to experiment with other glass as well, AIS and some some newer stuff too, and wow, I got the GX85, started putting my Nikon glass on it, started putting the different things that I expected to work a certain way because I had been watching G7 footage. And sometimes people even make comments on YouTube, and they're not correct comments, but they say things like, these settings for the Panasonic G7 should work on any other camera like this. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things that's farthest from the truth, because that is the entire reason I created my website, is to specify what settings I use for every single lens specific to a camera. Because... I'm sort of going through the story of how I figured this out. So what I really found out was that not having that anti-aliasing filter on the GX85 made it much different than the G7. I have now about 50 different tests with um, these the four cameras I currently use, including the G7 and the GX85 and the G85 as well as a GH4, and, and I'll keep updating as I get more um, sen- sensors and more lenses as, as well. But the point is, they're so different. And um, I didn't know that because sometimes, like I say, people will make a statement that, oh, these settings are the cinematic settings for the G7, Panasonic G7, and they should work on any Panasonic camera. Well, that didn't work. I also figured that out when I bought people's LUTs. I would find a LUT that I liked. I would watch their footage, and then I would try it on my camera, and it was like, wait a minute. You said that was the same camera. And, and it was, but it didn't work. And I've heard people say things like, well, LUTs are all, they're super specific to that lighting situation or whatever. And I understand that's sometimes true. If you mess with color, if you mess with certain things, well, and, and, and contrast as well. But I would say more important than the different lighting condition, it's really the lens. And then if you use filtration, like a filter, you know, ND filter or polarizing filter, whatever it is, that is even more important. So it's the lens-sensor combination. So I said I was going to be talking about lens sensor relationships and that it's sort of my favorite subject and if you understand how much of a quality improvement can be achieved just by optimizing the lens sensor relationship then you'd be excited about it too I think because I talk, I talked about I've I've I said this in the past but I talked about how my Panasonic FZ10, which is a you know one of the small sensor bridge cameras that Panasonic had about 2005, I think is when I bought it, and it was I just noticed it was too digital looking and so what I ended up doing was I put a tiffin filter, not a UV filter, a UV plus a Soft effects 2 on this thing. and then I was getting a real-looking uh, real image. And so I learned from that, and I also have a scary story. I, I tell this sometimes, uh, and sometimes, like right now, I try to figure out if I should because I might lose credibility if I, if I talk about this. But I'll just tell you. I put a plastic CD case, you know, the clear part, over the front of my lens... On my other camera. So I had two cameras. I bought two cameras to start out with when I was trying to um, you know, be a professional photographer in the transition from film to digital. It was a little bit tricky because, I mean, I had a background in graphic design and I used Photoshop all the time. So that helped. But I wasn't prepared for the limited dynamic range change compared to film. And especially when I I was a a negative shooter, so I didn't shoot a lot of slides. And I know that's a lot more difficult to shoot slides because they had like a half stop that you, you could be within to be accurate. Whereas for a negative, you had like one and a half stops that you could go either way and still be okay. Well, I got right into the middle of it and I got a Nikon D70. So this is a consumer level camera, maybe a little bit higher than that. And it did not have very much dynamic range at all, so I got a good Nikon lens uh, that I put on it, Nikon 24 to 85 AFD. That's a 2.8 to 4, and it has a macro part of the lens. Really great lens. I used that on the D70 um, for about a week or two, maybe three, and I didn't know about camera settings, you know, adjustments, changing the color profiles, things like that. All I knew was aperture, shutter speed, things like that that I used on film cameras. So, but what happened is I couldn't use it outdoors. I mean, the dynamic range could not handle the contrast ratio between the sun and and the shadows and the midtones it just couldn't handle it. And I was probably in a standard profile, and I know that's that was the wrong profile to be in. But nobody told me. I bought it at a, you know, I, I'm not going to say I should have been told that when I bought the camera, but maybe, you know. But I, I know that there's a learning curve to get a good image, but I'll tell you, I was just totally shocked. And then I compared that to the Panasonic FZ10 which I told you I used filtration to improve the image on that one. And the the Nikon interchangeable lens camera was just so bad. Now, I could use it in a studio situation when I can control the lighting ratio. I could add fill light, and I could add you know precise control of the power adjustments for all the output on the flash units. I could get great results with that Nikon D70. But outdoors, or just in normal lighting conditions that weren't controlled, it just wasn't usable. And and so I was at a photo shoot one time, and I knew that that was the only camera I could use for this specific shot because I needed to close focus, and the Panasonic F-C10 couldn't do that. So I started experimenting a couple of days before the shoot, and I figured out that putting the plastic CD case over the lens, the nice Nikon lens actually made it so it brought the light within the dynamic range capabilities of that sensor. That was a big deal. It's not something that I expected to happen. It was it was like I was desperate and I was trying everything I could and, and I, I I thought about the Panasonic and how I filtered that one. And I didn't really have filters that were the size I needed for the Nikon lens. And so I just was sort of desperate. And I tried it and it worked. Now it pushed the contrast way down and to the point where I had to go into Photoshop and, you know, work on it, but it was not blowing out the highlights and it gave me a smooth midtone that I could actually work with. Yeah, it took a lot of work. I had to sort of use curves in Photoshop to bring it back to looking real, but it worked. And I started shooting with a plastic CD case over my lens for the next four photo shoots or whatever until I, I don't think I started working in RAW and tweaking the curves in the camera or something like that. But the point is, yeah, it's pretty embarrassing that I didn't shoot in RAW to start with. But if I did, what if I, what if I never figured this out? what if i didn't realize that optimizing how the light goes into the camera through the lens was important i probably wouldn't i probably wouldn't be talking about it today but i know that's a little dramatic but so you can see uh, this i think this is kind of the reason why a lot of people gravitate toward vintage lenses and they speak negative about newer lenses i mean i've heard this i've heard this quite a bit you know newer lenses are too sharp they're too clinical looking. They're too, um, all this stuff, right? And what they're really saying is they don't like the result. I don't think they're saying, you know, um, it's a, not a good lens. I think they're just saying, I mean, if they were to th- stop and think, it, it's really just that s- sensor can't handle that amount of contrast or that amount of sharpness or whatever it is, right? So my original statement that it might have sounded a little bit dramatic was dynamic, having more dynamic range is not always the solution. So then what was the solution? I think it's modifying the path of the light, which means which lens you pick or what filters you use to prepare that light so that when it strikes the sensor it's doing so within the limited dynamic range capabilities of that sensor i know there's there are cameras that can shoot multiple frames in hdr and they can combine them together and stuff like that but but wait a minute that's that's going to take time it's going to and then for video that's going to take more processing and then for stills i mean for a while when you shot hdr it had to be on a tripod remember that when you had to shoot on Uh, I mean, people would actually manually do HDR images as well. They would shoot multiple frames and they combine them together and um, pretty fantastic stuff. But if you just get the lens to not deliver too much contrast, not too much sharpness, not too much color, and you might ask, well, why not too much sharpness? Well, now let's dig in to some more details. But I'm just gonna talk about really what's going on when you're modifying the light to optimize how much of all these attributes, the contrast, the sharpness, the color intensity, when it hits the sensor, if you handle it right, then you can get a really good looking image without a lot of post-processing. And I know a lot of people shoot, you know, in raw and log and flat profiles. And I don't want to go into why I don't recommend that for a beginner. Um, now, if you're a beginner who doesn't care about getting up and running right away, and you just you don't have any clients that need you to get your stuff turned around quickly, that's fine. If you have a year to learn stuff, then do it. Shoot raw, or I mean, sorry, you probably won't afford a, can't afford a rod camera to start with, but shoot and log in gray, and then figure it out at later in post-production. But I'm kind of joking a little bit about that, but really... My whole system is about making it easy. And that's why I try to get it right in camera. And there's still a little bit of post-processing you can do. This is not like you can't tweak it a little bit afterward. But so let's talk about this. If you're like me and you're wanting to improve the lens sensor relationship, to create an image that comes out of the camera looking really good. Now, if you have to do a live stream or if you have to, you know, do live television broadcast method or whatever, or just a no-edit workflow, you really want to do this. You gotta do this, right? But even if you've got time for post-production, I think this is a lot funner. But let's talk about the details now. So when you send light through a lens, there's a lot that happens, right? We know it's it's just it's it's a pretty amazing topic. There's a whole lot of things that happen. There are reflections, I mean the light comes bouncing around inside the lens um, you know the technology of uh, Zeiss and Leica. They have different um, multi coatings that they've used, and all the different things they do to to basically manage the light. They become sort of like photon managers, right? It's 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 the sensor can handle a certain amount of light, so it's really photon management that we're in. So if somebody asks you, what do you do? Instead of saying I'm a photographer or I'm a I'm a DP or you know, I'm a filmmaker, you could say I'm a photon manager. That would be fun, right? Yeah, put put, put put that on your next business card. should say photon management, right? As one of your bullet points of things that you do. Hey, it's a conversation starter. So I think it's fun to get down to the level of what's really going on. Now, I'm not going to be able to tell you scientifically because I haven't managed photons as a scientist, but... In a practical sense, I've tried lots of lenses. That's what my website is about, testing different lenses on different cameras. And everybody knows, really, that when you pull a vintage lens out of the closet or whatever and you put it on there, even if that lens has some problems, it might have less contrast or it might have less sharpness or it might have, you know, some of the bad things. I mean, those two things actually are positives in my mind a lot of the time but it might have i mean if it has acceptable sharpness that's that's fine right but if it doesn't have chromatic aberrations and those glowy blue and red fringing on areas you know then you're good to go but just having less contrast or less sharpness in a certain sense or less color saturation maybe those can be of actually a valuable thing because it's a benefit right there's a group on facebook it's um Vintage lenses for video. If you haven't checked that out, search for it vintage lenses for video. And there's a lot of discussion about what lenses, vintage lenses, work well on what. You know, I wish they would tell you all the time what camera they use. You sort of have to draw it out of some people sometimes. But it's really about what we're talking about. It's about, hey, I found this vintage lens and I really like a lot of the characteristics about it. It just looks so much better than these newer lenses that don't have all these. I mean they have flares and there's a lot of faults that they like about the lenses as well. You could call them a fault, or you could call them, you know, characters, what the positive way to say it would be. So we all know that vintage lenses send light to the sensor differently. And for many reasons. You want it's almost like you can stop here and you could say, has the technology behind lenses improved? Or lens making? Well, sure. Sure. I I mean if you've ever used a Sigma 18-35 1.8, to I bought one um, recently, tested it, and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of, it's got a lot of good attributes to it. There's a lot of things that are good about it. But when you put certain vintage lenses on the same camera, you notice that it's a lot easier to control the, the sensor can handle the amount of contrast coming from some of these older lenses better than one of these newer lenses. I mean, I had to apply a plus three shadow under highlight shadow. If you're familiar with the Panasonic menu system, highlight shadow curve um, adjustment while shooting, obviously not shooting in raw, but it can help on certain lenses. So also the plus two shadow with the minus two highlight, that's another way to do it. Different, little bit different scenario. Those are things that I never hear people talk about, but I I've, I've found that with the Sigma eighteen to thirty five, a lot of the time I use the plus three shadow on highlight shadow, and it looks great because that lens just has so much contrast. You just like whoa, your shadows get all blocked up in black and there's no detail, and it's like well thanks for the really good lens technology. This isn't helping. Well, I, I, so I don't want to say that the new technology isn't a positive thing. But you know, if you're a vintage lens shooter, or if you have heard about it, that there's a problem here. There's a problem with lens designs going ahead full speed, and we're going to get the sharpest and the most contrast and the most whatever. And wait a minute, we forgot to match it to the capabilities of the sensor. So this is where we are right now. It's kind of fun, though, if you think about it. You can experiment. You can do these tests yourself. So when the light comes in, the light comes into the lens. And if it's a sunny day, let's just take this extreme scenario where you've got a lot of dynamic range being delivered. So the light is intense in the sun and the shadows. There's quite a difference. There's just too much dynamic range for for most sensors to handle. If you had more dynamic range, yes, you could capture it on the sensor right but then you'd still have to conform it to rec 709 or you know the standard color space of whatever tv that people are going to be watching on or i know that the the new netflix standard is higher and there's hdr capabilities but not everyone has hdr capable displays but even if they are okay you still have to make an exposure judgment you've got to choose where you're going to expose and if you're going to include shadow detail or not in the most extreme situations. So if you have a lens or a filter lens combination that is sort of toning that down, whether it's contrast or intensity of the sharpness or whatever it is, you have sort of a tool that you have this like photon management system where you're saying, okay, hey, that's too many photons right at this time. We need less. So, okay. It's kind of like a, think of it as a freeway. When you see that flashing light that says, you know, the freeway is metered when flashing. So you're like, oh no, we're going to have to do this stop thing and then look at the red light and green light and then start up again real quick and merge. Well, that's kind of like what we're doing. We're saying, hey, this is a freeway that has a certain density it can handle. This, This is the light analogy. Okay. So the freeway is like photons. Each car is like a photon. and We're saying the intensity, we can only have so many cars on here at one time because the maximum, you know, speed limit is such and such. And that means this many cars. So we have to make a, I don't know whether they have specific code or algorithm that tells you how many cars can come on. However, they do that, they meter it so that there's not too many cars coming on at the same time. Well, this is kind of what we have to do for light. We have to manage how much light comes in and once you get to know the capabilities of your sensor, that is your camera, you sort of meter that back. Now, this is all about testing and experimenting and figuring out what works with what lens and what camera. And so, photon management, this new, let's let's just put that into some of the school curriculums here. What do you want to be when you grow up, Johnny? I want to be a photon manager. Photon manager, is that kind of like a plant manager? And he says, well... You know, plants do need photons for the photosynthesis. Bad joke, or should I say dad joke. And if we just say photon management is the new thing, it is people who know how to prepare the light or match the light to the capabilities of a certain sensor. I think that we should all become photon managers. Be really good at it, right? Get good at it. However, if you want to benefit from some of my experience in this area. If you want to benefit from what I have uh, tested and the the research I've done, check out my website, silverlightphotocode.com, and you'll find, you can go into the cameras and settings section, and you can find your camera, if you have one of the cameras I have, and you can find the lens, all the lenses I've tested, and what settings I recommend for each combination. Now, this is sort of a and you think, well, that's a lot of work. Well, it is a lot of work on my side, but what I'm trying to do is make it easy so that every time you change your lens, you just basically go to my website, search for the lens name, or just go to the camera, and it's alphabetical, you can find it, there's some shortcuts as well, and you just change your settings when you change your lens. I do this all the time and it's easy because I've, of course, done it quite a while, but you can also put custom settings into your camera And those custom settings can be for, you know, like one, two or three custom settings you can save. You could say these are the three lenses I use normally and here are the settings. However, I have way more than three settings or even some some cameras have four or five custom presets you can save. I have way more combinations than that. And so I had to start making this database. And now you can look at it. You can access this database that I've been creating it's um, my website, silverlight, again, silverlightphotoco.com. And then we can you can see more specifics about each lens that I've tested and specific to a camera. So check that out. I wish I could go into more detail. I just kind of, I guess I'm metering my talking now because I want to stay about half an hour or less on these podcasts. But I'll do another podcast, maybe um, a deeper dive into, you know, what's happening when these photons are basically coming and hitting the sensor. The bottom line is once you figure out what settings work for each lens, you really have a better, a a really good starting point.